0: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature Podcast. The novelty of Scripture lies in its multifaceted handling of anthropocentrism. It deconstructs and breaks apart our institutions and smashes our egos, repositing us as individuals set free to hear and do the commandments of God. In no uncertain terms, the Apostle Paul proclaims, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. As sheep in the Lord's flock, we are free to assume our natural state among the other living things on earth, not as masters but as adherents of god's instruction again paul says for you were called to freedom brethren only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As scripturalized sheep, we do what God commands with a nagging and painful reminder that we have done nothing good upon the earth. Honestly, in an epic story written to emasculate anthropocentrism, no human being will ever get any credit for anything. Thus we find ourselves at the start of Luke's gospel, as lovers of God, following the voice of his shepherd in the wilderness, hearing in silence, frantically taking notes, while the master gives instruction. Richard and I discuss the gospel of Luke, chapter 1, Verses 1 to 4. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 429 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we took some time to place Mark in order on the heels of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the fact that the canon orders the books, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, has nothing to do with when the books were written. It has to do with the way that the Pauline School, which handed the biblical text to the church. Please, let's not get into a lengthy discussion about whether or not the church wrote the Bible. The church is not the author of the Bible. The writers of the Bible who were bringing God's message to the churches. Remember, Paul was a tent maker, not a tent builder. You can't build a tent in Hebrew or Greek. You can set up a tent, but you can't build it. You can build a building, but not a tent. Paul was sent by God through Jesus Christ to set up the tent of meeting to gather up the chicks that wouldn't listen (laughs) to the hen at the end of the castigation of the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew. He was sent to pitch a tent, the tent of meeting, and to once again preach the Torah in the wilderness, and people wouldn't listen. So Mark, after Paul's death, was written quickly to ensure that despite the rejection of Paul's teaching by the churches, Paul's teaching would be secured in writing. And in Mark, you have hints that Paul's disciples were already warning that Herod's project not only was a bad idea, (laughs) but that it was going to fail. You have discussion in Mark already of the collapse of the temple. In Matthew, which we just completed, you have... The literary destruction of the temple on full display, but Matthew was written much later the way Genesis was written much later to weave the whole thing together. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Pauline school, this group of writers are presenting to you the Bible. If you want to understand where the Bible came from, you have to read Matthew, because Matthew is pulling together the New Testament the way Genesis pulls together the Old Testament. It's one book. It was not decided at a church council. It was decided by the Gospel of Matthew, to be clear. So now we come to Luke, and Luke is dealing with the historical setting of post-Temple Palestine, meaning the temple has been destroyed. This idiotic idea of deciding to resist the invasion and throw stones at tanks didn't work out so well. You're not going to defeat the Romans or anybody else. And even if you do, the only person you're defeating is the prophet The only person you're executing is Jesus when you kill your enemy. The only thing you're assaulting is God's teaching when you assault the invader. Capish? So their little revolt didn't work. Everything failed. They lost. The temple was destroyed. And the teaching was defeated in Palestine. But Paul's teaching wasn't defeated, because he said all along, your temple is a silly idea, Herod, it's anti-scriptural, and we don't need it, because we live in the tent of meeting in the wilderness. It's portable, and if the Romans come with their chariots, we'll just move to another watering hole. And so you see the progression when you see the order of books versus the historical events that precipitated the authorship of these texts. You have in Matthew the story of Jesus' decimation of Jerusalem and the temple. You have in Mark what happens after Jesus is set free from Herod's project into the wilderness to preach the gospel. And now in Luke we have the aftermath it's very interesting, Richard. Yeah, this
1: progression from book to book is something that we often miss because we're looking at this piece or that piece, or we read from this gospel or that gospel, and, and unless you're paying a lot of attention when the priest says this is the gospel we're reading from, you don't even really notice. And Especially, you know, during Holy Week, we hear so many gospels and we lose track of who's saying what about which one. So I'm really happy, Father, that this week we can dig into this idea of why Luke is where it's at, why Luke begins the way it does, and why. does it come after Mark and come after Matthew? Matthew was bringing the kingdom. It was opening the kingdom. Mark was talking about sowing the seed and making sure the kingdom was here to come to pass, that the seeds of the teaching were bearing fruit. And now with Luke, the seed has been sown. We know the kingdom is here at hand. So what comes next? What comes next? If we're reading in the orientation that the canon provides for us, we're looking for that moment when the seed begins to bear fruit. And how does it bear fruit? It bears fruit among the Gentiles. It brings fruit among the various nations that now have received the seed. The seed, they haven't received the fruit. They received the seed. And as we know from the parable that appears both in Mark and in Matthew, we'll see where the seed lands. What kind of fruit is gonna come from it? We have to find out. And here Luke begins in a very particular way, in a unique way that we don't find in any other gospel, where he presents the gospel as explicitly an argument. In Matthew and Mark, Matthew begins with the genealogy. Mark begins with John in the wilderness. And Luke begins with an exposition to a reader explicitly so that it is laid out as an argument to convince you of the things and of the reality that these things bring to pass not the reality behind the story that's not what i'm talking about what i'm saying is the reality that these stories bring to mind the way that they show you a way of looking at the world that you could not have seen You know, I was recently explaining the gospel and how the gospel works to a Muslim friend of mine. And I said, you see Rome, but you know the kingdom of God is at hand. And now Luke is going to make this argument explicitly to a particular reader, a particular addressee, to see if the person will be convinced that this is the correct way of viewing what one sees with one's ears, not with one's
0: eyes. One thing I want to mention, Rich, before we jump into the Gospel of Luke. Luke was written as a diptych with Acts. It's Luke Acts. But for the purposes of this podcast, we are going to hear Luke in its canonical order. From time to time, we may touch on Acts because it's the same author and the texts are obviously interconnected, but we are going to try to hear Luke within its place in the canon, Matthew, Mark, Luke, followed by John. But just as we always do on this podcast, we bring other texts in because they're interconnected. We will, from time to time, bring in Acts and the letters of Paul and other texts from the Pauline school and texts from the Ezekielian school of the Old Testament, because it's all interconnected. But I just want to note for our listeners, because it's important that we call this out, the author of Luke is the author of Acts. The two texts are interconnected in a very special way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I want to stop here to call out the terminology. It's Pauline terminology. Paradidomi is the thing that's handed down. Once again, handed down not to be debated, we are talking about the content of the Pauline gospel that was codified for the churches in the gospel of Mark historically, which was written quickly to ensure that after the betrayal of Paul, the gospel wasn't brushed under the rug Remember that Paul's teaching was rejected by those who said they accepted it. And interestingly enough, Galatians and Acts are interconnected, and right here at the beginning of Luke, we're already, already back into Acts, thinking about the tension between Peter, James, and John, and Paul over the gospel to the very church, the Gentile church, that Luke is now addressing after the destruction of the temple, after the failure of Herod's silly project in Judea. Herod's building project was a flop, and now we are in the post-Palestinian church of the Gentile wilderness, and we're talking about the thing that was handed down in writing. And it was handed down from the beginning by those who were eyewitnesses, specifically, again, in the New Testament, those who beheld the resurrected Lord. Paul beheld the resurrected Christ. This was very important. You can't talk about seeing the resurrected Christ unless you are a character in the story. It's locked into the gospel because to see the resurrected Christ is to have a special kind of authority that no one living today has. It's blasphemy to claim that you have seen the resurrected Lord because you are claiming a power that doesn't belong to you. It's about power. Go back and reread the end of 1 Corinthians. You have no right to claim that power. That's the power that belongs specifically to the apostles and chiefly to Paul, which is why he can say he's the chief among sinners. And actually here, Richard, the word that is used is not slave, it's underling, underlings of the word, which is an important term throughout the Gospel of Luke.
1: The power that the narrator brings to this is he says, these are the things that were believed among us. And this word, liroforeo, the things that are fully understood, fully understood, fully believed. This is what I'm presenting to you. Just like other people have laid these things out that we believe, I want to offer you another way to see these things that we believe. Okay. So he's not laying out an account of activities or actions or events. He's laying out the things that we believe. He's not smashing other people's beliefs. He's not owning the other side. It's not a sick burn that he's trying to commit here. He's laying things out that they believe. He's not standing on a street corner shouting. He's not making an emotional appeal. He says, these are the things that we believe, and just like other people have tried to lay these things out, I'm going to make an attempt as well. Now, other people. He says, many others have done so, Well, we know two. Matthew and Mark, and Paul, surely. We have these three who are already testifying to these events, and when I say events, I mean the items that the narrator here says are believed among us. As a minister, an underling, as one who serves this word, my job is just to lay them out. And, you know, what we do in the Bible's literature podcast, it's similar but secondary. The Gospels have already written. We don't, we're not trying to write a fifth Gospel here. We're simply laying out the things that are believed among those who set these ideas out, the authors of Scripture. The power of the story itself is just presented to you as a story. That's it. I've run into so many people who say, like, well, how come if you believe this, you're not a Muslim or you're not a Mormon or something? I said, I don't know. The Bible convinced me. The Book of Mormon, the Quran, they didn't convince me. So that's not what I do. What I do is scripture. What I do is the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. But, you know, where I'm confronted with wisdom, wherever I'm confronted with it, I have to believe it because it's laid out there for me as well. So this is specifically to convince this hypothetical reader that's mentioned here, this lover of wisdom, this lover of God, this kind of philosophical character, let's say, is being presented with this. Now, importantly, we don't ever hear the opinion of the one that this is presented to we don't get a thumbs up or a thumbs down or I was convinced by this I was not convinced with that it's not a platonic dialogue where the people are going back and forth there's no back and forth there's one person speaking and that's the narrator he says if you want you can read these other books other people have laid this out as well please read them but here's what I'm presenting period the other character does not have a voice only ears
0: It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Two things I want to say, Rich. Number one, to write it out in consecutive order. That's what we've been saying all along. But the consecutive order has nothing to do with historicity. We've already explained, when talking about the historical critical context, why Mark was written, why Luke was written, why Matthew was written, Matthew's weaving the canon together, Luke is addressing a post-Temple historical context, Mark is threatening you don't mess it up. Paul is gone. Don't throw away his gospel. And by the way, Paul was right. The temple's going to go away. Temple's a waste of time. Don't fight for it. It's going to be destroyed. Don't be stupid. And Luke is, after the fact, guess what? It was destroyed. And now who is Luke speaking to? Luke is speaking to someone with a Greek name in a post-temple context. There is no Jerusalem. Now, I mean, we're going to deal with Jerusalem in the story because it's literature, but it's literature. There is no Jerusalem. And the person hearing the story in the historical setting, this wasn't written for Minnesotans or New Yorkers, it wasn't written for anyone in North America in 2022. And if you want to make it relevant for today, just stop. Go invent a new religion. Leave us alone. Not interested. If you want to hear what Luke is saying, I have bad news for you. The only hope for you is to start studying the history of the Middle East. Lucky for me, because I'm an Arab. Unlucky for you, because you have blonde hair and blue eyes tough luck. If you want to hear what Luke is saying, you have to go back in time to late antiquity, not even to the Rome of Marcus Aurelius, (laughs) but to a very specific time in Roman history. To hear what Luke is saying, you have to transport yourself back in time And my crack about Arab culture is just a crack because it's not even the Arab culture of today. You have to go back in time, but you have to go back in time to a culture and an attitude that is totally alien, totally foreign, and frankly, mostly despised by contemporary Western culture. But Like I said, tough luck, because if you submit that this text is life-giving, that's how you're going to hear it. So please stop with this ridiculous attempt to make this relevant for today. That's just a dumb idea. It will never work. You have to go back in time and hear what the author is saying to his or her audience in the historical setting. And in that situation, it is a big deal that Luke, or as Father Paul likes to joke, Lucy, (laughs) is using a Greek name. And you picked up on it already, Richard. Why a Greek name? Theophilus. Why? It's not by chance. It could be What a lot of theologians have said, something about wisdom and philosophy, but we know that's not true. If you've been listening to us for the last umpteen years, if you've been listening to Father Paul, or it could be in context of the actual story that we've been hearing, that now the Pauline Church has been set free with Christ from Herod's building project. Now the Pauline Church has been set free from the lie of fleshly circumcision. And now Luke, or Lucy, <laughs> is addressing any member of this community in the wilderness, the lovers of God, who are free to hear the gospel. And why a Greek name? Because they don't have to be from Judea They don't have to have a Semitic name. That's the trick. It's powerful. But you have to go back into their world, their time, and hear it in their setting, in the original language, with its mentality. You have to let it be imposed on you to hear what's going on. So we have this address to
1: a Greek-named addressee. I'm going to lay out these words. Not a story that's historical fact. It's not a dialogue. It's not back and forth. It's not, I think this, what do you think of that? What do you believe happened? No. The only reference point even possible is that other people have tried to set these words out as well. So your job now is to simply listen. I'm laying them out. It's for you to hear. And as a lover of God, hopefully you're open to this and hopefully you're willing to listen to God. Because what is a lover of God who doesn't want to listen to God? That's nonsense. Someone who loves God is someone who listens to God. And so I'm presenting this as the correct way of understanding not God, but understanding what God said. So you have to listen. Now, in the last two Gospels, as others have laid out, Jesus shows that while Caesar has power over death, God alone has power over death and over life. That only God is over all. And this is what we're trying to teach, that while the Romans appear to have the power of life and death because you can do the thumbs up or the thumbs down, even the one who gets the thumbs up is going to die, and even the one whose thumb is up is going to die. And there's only one who is different than all of this. So with that, we have a listener who loves God, who wants to hear, and is now For the third time, hearing how these things, these words, they keep wanting to say things, but I'm afraid that people are going to get confused. I'm talking about historical events. He's not talking about historical events. He's talking about those things that are believed among us. Those things are coming out now. One more time, we're going to lay them out. This will be the third time. And now you're going to hear, O lover of God.
0: So in the first three verses of Luke... We hear the cancellation, once again, of Herod's building project and circumcision, which was a mechanism of branding and marketing to levy a tax for his building project. And at the same time, and I really appreciate you bringing this point up, Richard, we have the cancellation of the platonic dialogue. You want to say, ah, the Pauline Church is the hero. Finally, we know who the good guys are. No way, because Luke now is saying, sit down, take out your notebooks and a pencil, because I'm going to say something, and you're going to take notes. This is not a dialogue, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You don't learn anything. You're not a learner. Just like you don't repent. There's no act of humility. You are humbled by God, and you are taught by Jesus Christ. You are taught by the Apostle Paul. You don't learn from Paul. It's difficult because Western individualism gives the disciple agency. But biblical judgment gives the individual disciple accountability, but puts the agency in the hand of the teacher. It's not that there isn't a part for the individual, because in the end, the anti-institutional teaching of Scripture is all about individual accountability and individual agency, but not in the egocentric way of Western individualism. You, as a disciple, aren't doing anything in Scripture, but you have to do everything. I'm going to say it again. You, in Scripture, as a disciple, aren't doing anything, but you have to do everything. And if you can't figure out what I mean, just go watch children cleaning the kitchen while their mother is talking. Now, it won't work. <laughs> Unless it's an immigrant mom who just gives orders and doesn't give pats on the back. Then you'll understand what Scripture is doing. Very simple. No process, no treats, just barking orders. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, and again, I'm glad that I'm avoiding this word, things, because I don't like it how it's used in verse 4 here, the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. It's the words that you've been instructed. The words, the certainty of the words which you've been instructed. So you're instructed in the certainty actually, the certainty of the words. But we can't get hung up on the events that are supposedly behind the words. There are no events behind the words. That's why when I talk about the person speaking here, I don't say the author, I say the narrator. Because if I say the author, I'm assuming the author is speaking here, but the author's not speaking. It's simply a character in the story. And there's a game that the author can play with the narrator speaking in the first person, making it sound like it's the author, but it's not the same. And here the narrator is Working, is writing, is traveling, is convincing this lover of God that that person should trust in these words above any other words. That's it. Trust in these words above every other word. Not the events, not the guy, not the character, not the person, not the destruction, not the nothing. Believe in the words. And this is like what I said to my Muslim friend. It's easy to be convinced about the army that's attacking you right now. That's easy. No one needs to wonder w- whether there's an army here or not. But the story about why the army is here, that's a totally different thing. And Luke is writing so that the listener is convinced Luke's narrator is convincing Theophilus that these are the words that they have to trust. And by trusting in these words, then they'll understand the kingdom. Then they'll understand the urgency of the word going out in the seed. But only with the words, there's nothing to see. There's only something to hear.
0: Buckle up brothers and sisters. If you thought Matthew was exciting, we're just getting warmed up with Luke. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've
1: just heard the Bible as
0: literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.